Well, how would you like to be a millionaire or maybe a billionaire? We hear more about that term in recent years, but how would you like to be a millionaire? Now we're going to talk about that. How would you like to just simply increase your influence, whether or not that leads to more money? How would you just like to have a bigger impact, bigger influence in your community? I'm going to tell you this story about a young guy, 26 years old, who was a broke computer programmer. Today, he's a billionaire. And it's just been a few years that have passed. I'm going to tell you about a book that impacted him and the principles that he extracted that made him increase his influence that dramatically. The book is Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion by Robert Cialdini. I want to talk about some of the principles out of there, some real life examples and how you can use the same thing. I'm going to give you a synopsis of a book that's 580 pages long. I'm going to give you the points that you can walk away from in the next 45 minutes or so, and you can do the same. Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, we're going to be taking care of business as usual, but we're going to approach it a little bit differently today in a way that I really, really enjoy. And I'm going to tell you this story about Tobias Lutke, who is the founder and CEO of Spotify. Now, as a kid, he suffered from dyslexia, ADHD, all those typical terms that are given to a kid that doesn't fit in well. He skipped school a lot. He was rebellious. Even after he got out of school, rebellious, didn't perform well on jobs and all that. But he was a computer programmer. And he came up with this idea. And the thing that he says transformed his life was reading this book, Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion. So I'm going to give you some of the principles out of there and how we can apply those today. We give you some real life examples. I think the simplicity of it is going to surprise you and there are going to be things you can walk away with. So I'm going to be talking about five elements from this book, five elements that I want to just discuss briefly here today. Number one is reciprocation. I mean, the example is why Charlie Brown could get a cookie anytime he wanted to. I'm going to tell you that. Why Charlie Brown could get a cookie anytime he wanted to. Number two is liking. How a common car salesman became extremely wealthy. Number three is authority. Why admitting you made a mistake can elevate the trust others have in you. Number four is social proof. I mean, I'm going to give you one simple phrase that will increase your sales or whatever it is you're doing. Then number five is consistency. Why asking people for help makes them want to help you more. So I'm going to go through those examples and I'll give you some real life tips how to do those five things as we wrap up as well. Our quotation for today is this. This comes from Craig Linval. He's the founder of CEO. It's a program I'm involved in creating entrepreneurial opportunities from the Midland Institute up in Effingham, Illinois. Anyway, Craig Linval, he said this, who will be better because of what I do today? Isn't it a great thought? If you ask yourself that every morning, who will be better because of what I do today? I want to have my, that is my model for the next several days at least, to just ask myself that every morning. Who will be better because of what I do today? All right, let's go through these. Number one, reciprocation. Now, this refers to the human need to return the favor. 
mean, they did a research at a Southern California candy shop and they examined the buying patterns of customers who either did or did not receive a free piece of candy as they entered. Receiving the gift made recipients 42% more likely to make a purchase. Now, here's the interesting thing. They didn't even have to like the candy that they were given. They may not have liked the candy that they were given, but having been given it still increased their likelihood to purchase something dramatically. Remember back a few years ago, I don't know if they're still using it. People don't go to malls as much apparently, but Chick-fil-A in the malls, you remember what they used to do? There'd be some young guy, young gal out there walking around with a plate of chicken, this delicious chicken with two picks. You taste one. You think that increased their sales? Oh my goodness. You better believe it. I mean, think about the many times where that's been a factor where you're given something and then you take action on that. I mean, I give away a lot of books. I mean, I know the principle. I can give away books as many as I want to because it prompts people to come back and make decisions with 48 days on higher ticket items. I mean, it's not being manipulative. I don't want to present any of these things as being manipulating humans, but it does, in fact, work exactly like we're talking about, where it will increase your success big time. Now, I want to give you an example here that he gives in the book, the author. So this is the author talking. He says, I was walking along the street when I was approached by an 11 or 12 year old boy. He introduced himself, said he was selling tickets to the annual Boy Scout Circus to be held on the next upcoming Saturday night. He asked if I wished to buy any tickets at $5 a piece. I declined. Well, he said, if you don't want to buy any tickets, how about buying a couple of our candy bars? They're only a dollar a piece. So I bought a couple and right away I realized something noteworthy had happened. I knew that to be the case because A, I do not like chocolate bars. B, I do like dollars. C, I was standing there with two of his chocolate bars and D, he was walking away with two of my dollars. Now that prompted the author to do some deep research on this thing about influence, but it has to do with this reciprocity, reciprocity where he said no to the higher ticket item, but then he said yes to one that was a lower amount. Now in the book, he also uses a cartoon from Dennis the Menace that's really cute, but it's one of those where Dennis the Menace walks up to his mom and says, you know, mom, can I have a, can I have a pony? His mom says, no, you know, of course not. You know, we live in the city. It wouldn't be appropriate. There'd be no way. You know, it's too big a pet to take care of. And he says, well, okay, if I can't have a pony, can I at least have a cookie? His mom says, well, yeah, I guess that's the least I can do. And then Dennis walks away in his little thought cloud, you know, that he always has above his head. He's thinking, you know, who would believe it? I have an invisible horse who's worth his weight in cookies. So anytime he wanted a cookie, he'd ask his mom for a pony. She'd say no. And then she'd say, well, at least I can give you a cookie. But it's, it's that principle of reciprocity. So I want you to plant that in your mind. Going to go on to number two. Number two is liking. Now, this refers to the old adage, we do business with people we like. I mean, here, I mean, the author in the book refers to less than revolutionary truths that we often make business decisions based on someone, someone's looks and familiarity with us. But uh, those are the kind of things that we, well, well, here's an example. He talked to a uh, gentleman who would handle malpractice suits. And the guy says, every doctor makes an occasional mistake. 
But most of those mistakes don't turn into malpractice suits. Why do some doctors get sued more than others? And the guy says this, I'd say the most important factor in many of our cases is the quality of the doctor-patient relationship. In all the years I've been in this business, I've never had a potential client walk in and say, I really like this doctor, but I want to sue him. People just don't sue doctors they like. Now, being a car guy, I recognize this next name I want to share with you, and that is Joe Girard. Joe Girard was a car salesman from Detroit. Now, he's in the Guinness Book of Records because of the records that he set, but he specialized in the liking rule. I mean, the liking rule is what he used to make him so successful. So he was in Detroit and he became wealthy in the process of selling lots of cars, making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. And this was a lot of years ago. Now with such income, we, we might guess that he was a high level general motors executive, or maybe he was the owner of a couple Chevy dealerships. No, and again, it tickles me. You know, he wasn't selling Mercedes or Lamborghinis or Ferraris. Or, he was selling Chevrolets. He made his money just as a normal salesman on the showroom floor. But he was phenomenal at what he did. For 12 years straight, he won the title of number one car salesman. He averaged more than five cars and trucks every day he worked. And he's been called the greatest car salesman, yeah, by the Guinness Book of World Records. Now, for all his success, the formula he used was really pretty simple. It consisted just of offering people two things, a fair price and someone that they liked, a salesman that they liked. Now, here's another thing that they did, and a lot of you could use utilize this principle. He did something that, on the face of it, seems like it'd take a lot of time and be costly, but it made him a very wealthy man. Every month, he sent every one of his more than 13,000 former customers a holiday greeting card containing the printed message. The holiday greeting card changed from month to month. You know, so it'd say Happy New Year, Happy Valentine's Day, Happy Thanksgiving, and so on. But the message printed on the face of the card never changed. It read, I like you. And as Joe explained, there's nothing else in the card. He says, nothing but my name. I like you, Joe Girard. That's it but people would get a card every month. I'm just telling them that I like them. Is that simple or what? And yet that idea of liking, as he tells about there, made him a very wealthy man. What a simple principle to use. You know, maybe some of you could use that in what it is you're doing. Okay, number three on our list of five here, number three is authority. Now this plays a major role in business. I mean, someone who's introduced as a professor seems taller than someone introduced as a graduate student. You know, car drivers wait longer before honking at a luxury car than they do an old car. You know, I have to admit, when I'm out driving, if I'm coming out of a parking lot and need to get into busy traffic, people stop instantly if I'm driving my black Corvette. I you know, kind of embarrassed to say that, but it, but it just is a reality. They do. Now, if I'm driving something else, if I'm driving an old car of some kind, it's a lot tougher to get out in traffic. There's that kind of authority. Now, we're going to talk about how you can increase your authority. It doesn't mean you have to go out and get something expensive, 
But if we take as an example the authority of a doctor, now we know that doctors, we give them a lot of credibility. We assume that they're right. People don't question what they say. Now that can lead to challenges as well. And the book lays out some examples of that. I mean, there are, it says, according to the Institute of Medicine, which advises the U.S. Congress on health policy, hospitalized patients can expect to experience at least one medication error per day. Other statistics are equally frightening. Annual deaths in the United States from medical errors exceed those of all accidents, and worldwide, 40% of primary and outpatient care patients are harmed by medical errors each year. Now that's, but it, it just speaks to the power of being in a position or having a title like that and how it elevates authority. Now, a couple of other examples here, and then we'll, we'll talk through this, how you can increase your authority no matter what it is you're doing. But there is, the author said his favorite example is a TV commercial for Vicks Formula 44 cough medicine featuring the actor Chris Robinson, who had a key role as Dr. Rick Weber in the popular daytime TV drama, General Hospital. The commercial, and which began with the line, I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. Then he offered his advice to a young mother regarding the benefits of Vicks Formula 44. That was a very, very successful commercial for them. Very, very successful. So even a pretend doctor has a lot of authority. Now, it turns out that that particular doctor didn't have a happy ending. He ended up being accused of well, being, being convicted of tax evasion and spend the rest of his life in prison, but just showing up as a doctor. But now think about how this, how this plays out in today's environment. I still, when I go in to see a doctor, I don't want to have somebody just show up, you know, in cutoffs and a t-shirt. I, I do want somebody who looks like a doctor when they walk in the room. Now we've had a lot of things where we've got so casual. I mean, when you think about, you used to go to the bank, my goodness, the banker would always have on a suit, dark suit, white shirt, and tie. I mean, always. I mean, I still expect when I go to the pharmacy for the pharmacist to have on a white lab coat. I mean, I had an example just uh, recently talking to a gentleman who is a doctor, and he had kind of gotten into the routine of just being very casual in how he dressed. And then he experimented with that and realized that the implementation of his advice went up dramatically if he wore a lab coat. If he wore a lab coat, people assumed he was the authority. They would do what he said. Now, obviously, anything I'm talking about here can be used in a good way or a bad way. It's like understanding a brick. A brick can be used to be part of building a cathedral, or it can be used to smash somebody's front window. So any of these things can be used in a negative way, but they certainly can be used in a positive way. But think about the things that we normally do today. I mean, even if you get on a Zoom call, how many times have you gotten on a Zoom call recently and somebody on there is unshaven, you know, has a torn shirt and a baseball cap on backward? I mean, do you really take that person seriously? I mean, how easy it is to elevate your credibility by simply paying attention to the way that you look. You know, in churches, I mean, I don't even know how to explain this. I mean, it used to certainly be true that no matter what, 
a pastor was going to show up in a suit and tie. You know, today, goodness knows what they're going to be wearing when they walk out on stage. Now, I don't have any explanation for all that, and maybe it's more relatable, but I, I think a lot of people compromise their authority by not paying attention to how they come across to other people. Now, here's here's another thing I want to add this in, and then we'll move on. But I want to add this in about how to increase your authority, and it really seems counterintuitive. And that is to admit to your mistakes. It makes you more relatable. It makes people believe in you. It increases your trustworthiness. Now, in this book, in Influence, the author talks about Warren Buffett, who with his partner, Charlie Munger, has led the Berkshire Hathaway Investment Company to astounding levels of growth and worth, is widely recognized as the greatest financial investor of our time. Not content to rest on his expertise and laurels, Buffett consistently reminds current and potential stockholders of the other component of credibility he possesses, that being trustworthiness. Near the start of his annual reports, usually in the first page or two of text, he describes a mistake he's made or a problem the company has encountered during the past year and examines the implications for future outcomes. Rather than burying, minimizing, or papering over difficulties, which seems to be the tack taken all too frequently in other annual reports, Warren Buffett demonstrates that he is, first, fully aware of the problems inside the company, and second, fully willing to reveal them. The emergent advantage is that when he then describes the formidable strengths of Berkshire Hathaway, readers are ready to trust in them more deeply than before, because they're coming from a manifestly trustworthy communicator. I mean, that's pretty interesting. But I used to try to to shield some of the things in my past. And, and, you know, it's kind of the Facebook presence. You only present the stellar, perfect moments in your life. Well, it's not easy for any of us, I think, to to share our faults and the things where we've made mistakes. But I've discovered over the years that doing that certainly does seem to make people trust me more. You know, talking about my own financial disaster, you know, or I made some moves too quickly. I ended up being deeply, deeply in debt, hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, and how I worked to come through that, the things that I did. Well, just sharing that story, and people really like, wow, are you serious? You did that, and now you're, you know, doing okay? So it's, it's helped me do that, be more open, be more open about the things that I've done. And here is research proof, again, that it increases a person's authority in that people see them as being more relatable. You don't need to be perfect to be seen as having authority. You just need to be real. All right, number four is social proof. Social proof. Now, this is kind of the bread and butter, you know, for entrepreneurs, for business people. I mean, uh, all animal species have largely evolved via imitation. I mean, we know that they imitate each other. And, uh, and so we use that same thing. People imitate each other's. Well, you know, that, that's why TV shows, you know, use canned laughter as an example. That's why nightclubs may have a really long line outside to give the impression that it's really crammed inside and difficult to get into, even if they have a lot of room inside. I mean, if church ushers may 
salt the collection baskets before passing it down for the same kind of reason. I mean, there's a, a lot of things are done like that. Again, it doesn't need to be manipulative, but we recognize that if other people are doing it, then I ought to be doing it as well. You know, if you want to increase the sales of a particular menu item without lowering the price or using more expensive ingredients, here's what you do. I found this interesting. More effective than calling it the specialty of the house or our chef's recommendation for tonight is simply listing it as most popular. Most popular. That's what people will follow. If it's most popular, that's what they're going to get. Now, here's an example. This will take you back in history a ways when you realize what I'm going to be talking about here. Consider the simple insight made by this one man made to make him a multimillionaire. His name was Sylvan Goldman. And after acquiring several small grocery stores in 1934, so now think back, that's, that's been a while ago, 1934, he noticed his customers stopped buying when their handheld shopping baskets got too heavy. This inspired him to invent the shopping cart, which in its earliest form was a folding chair equipped with wheels and a pair of heavy metal baskets. The contraption was so unfamiliar looking that at first none of Goldman's customers used one. Even after he built a more than adequate supply, placed several in a prominent place in the store, and erected signs describing their uses and benefits, frustrated and about to give up, he tried one more idea to reduce his customers' uncertainty, one based on social proof. He hired shoppers to wheel the carts through the store. His true customers then soon began following suit. His invention swept the nation, and he died a wealthy man with an estate of over $400 million. But that's pretty interesting. Social proof. Now, this can work against you as well. And he gives some examples in the book about working in a negative way. Our national parks have been burned multiple times. You know, they put up a sign, like this one, your heritage is being vandalized every day by theft losses of petrified wood of 14 tons a year, mostly a small piece at a time. You know what happened when they put that sign up? Theft increased. People thought, wow, if it's disappearing, I better get mine. And so they'd take a piece. When they, they put up a sign and showed that, urging people not to take wood, and they showed three thieves in action. It tripled theft. Now, we, we know social proof can go the other way. Now, right now, you hear what's happening with Anheuser-Busch. I mean, the fiasco of what they've done, thinking that they were moving in a way that social proof would help them, it has backfired in a bigger way than history has probably ever shown before. Over a $5 billion drop in value, Anheuser-Busch. They've made some big, big mistakes in what they're doing. Now, it remains to be seen if the power of that brand can survive this and come back or not. There are some people thinking, well, this is going to be soon forgotten story. People go back to the, the beer that they most enjoy I don't know, but even people who enjoy the beer because of the social proof, I mean, right now people will be embarrassed to walk into a store 
and order a, a carton of Bud Light just because of the social proof the buzz out there about how horrible this company is. That's a really, really glaring example of social proof that is working against this company big, big time. All right. Well, number five is consistency. Now, this refers to the human need to save face in front of others. I mean, we respect people who don't change their stance. So, for example, if you've built personal rapport with the prospect by genuinely asking how they're doing, they're going to feel motivated to consider your offer later. And I'm going to give you an example of that here. Alan Thomas is real active in our 48 Days community. A lot of you know Alan. He's been around for a very long time in our community. He's the one who helps people lose weight, helps them lose weight. So he looked down at the scale a couple of years ago and it said 304. Well, Alan was an insurance agent. He knows the stats for fat guys. Fat guys don't live very long. And he said he knew he was going to be remembered as Angie's first husband. That really motivated him. This was in February of that given year. He decided by Thanksgiving he was going to be at, at 175. So 304 to 175 is what, 129 pounds. And he did that and has maintained it. So now he helps other people do the same. Helps people, I mean, they've got great stories. He had a, a pastor he worked with recently who had on his bucket list to jump out of a plane, do a tandem jump out of a plane with a parachute. Well, he couldn't go because they don't take people who are over 250 pounds. And then there's a video of him doing that now because he's down at like 175. And it's inspired his old congregation to do some astounding things as well. Airline pilot, who weighed 450 pounds. People in wheelchairs have gotten out of wheelchairs. People who are diabetic who are able to stop their medication. Incidentally, Alan's site is transformmyfuture.com slash 48 days. So if you go there, you'll see a note from me there and you'll see a picture of Alan before and after. So it's transformmyfuture.com future.com slash 48 days. So check it out. But I love what he does here in terms of consistency. If somebody says, one of the things that he has his people do, the people that he's working with is post online your scale, looking at your scale every single day. I mean, there's a lot of accountability in that. There's a lot of having to prove consistency. If you say you're going to do something, then you do it. That's what it is. And as Alan says, He's famous for saying it's not a diet, it's a decision. He doesn't care what you eat, doesn't pay any attention to that at all because it's making a decision. And it relates to this principle of consistency from our book here, Influence, that we're looking at today. Now, when I was working on pulling together all the information on masterminds, I studied a lot Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin started his group called the Hunto in Philadelphia when he was 26 years old. You know, that group met for over 40 years, and out of that came all kinds of things. The first paved roads, the first public hospital, the first library, uh, the first fire protection. All those things came out of that group that met together, that he put together. But he was a good, he was really good at understanding people. And here's what he says. One, one year, there was a wealthy and influential new member of the assembly who made a speech against Franklin's appointment to the lucrative position of clerk of the Pennsylvania General Assembly. Here's how Ben Franklin dealt with the problem. Now, this is really good and, and something that you can, you can certainly use, you can use today. Here's how Ben Franklin dealt with the problem of having an adversary, another politician who didn't like him. 
He said, and to quote him, he said, I therefore did not like the opposition of this new member, who was a gentleman of fortune and education, with talents that were likely to give him in time great influence in the house, which indeed afterward happened. I did not, however, aim at gaining his favor by paying any servile respect to him, but after some time took this other method. Having heard that he, in his library, had a certain very scarce and curious book, I wrote a note to him expressing my desire of perusing that book and requesting he would do me the favor of lending it to me for a few days. He sent it immediately, and I returned it in about a week with another note expressing strongly my sense of the favor. When we next met in the house, he spoke to me, which he had never done before, and with great civility, and he ever after manifested a readiness to serve me on all occasions, so that we became great friends, and our friendship continued to his death. Now, Franklin was simply demonstrating another of his truisms, that is this, he that hath once done you a kindness will be more ready to do you another than he whom you yourself have obliged. Now, here's what happens. If a person has helped you, he's more likely to do so again, as refusing would mean he made a bad decision the first time. Now, this is how this can play out. If you need a favor, and you ask one of your neighbors for a favor, that's not an imposition. I had a gentleman, we were discussing this in another group, and the gentleman said he's realized that if somebody asks him for a favor, it tells him they've got a closer relationship than he even understood that they had. It seems like they're better friends if the person had was comfortable to ask him for a favor. I mean, now think about that. Again, it might seem counterintuitive, but no, it actually works the other way. You will get more help from people if you ask them for favors because it does, in fact, deepen that relationship. We just recently were gone for two weeks. So a couple of days before we left, we had dinner with our next door neighbors and we were talking about that. And they said, well, what else, you know, what can we do while you're gone? I said, well, if you just, you know, check the mail, see if packages come to the front door, that, that would be cool. And they said, well, sure, we'll take care of that. So we came back and I stopped over at their house and I said, uh, you know, I'm here to get mail and packages. He says, well, you know, here's your packages. There were a few things from Amazon, of course. And I said, well, what about the mail? And he says, oh, I never checked the mail. He somehow had missed that piece about checking the mail. And I knew we had had an enormous amount of mail. And I said, well, okay, I'll, you know, I'll just go get our mail. So I went to the mailbox and there was nothing in it. I thought, now, wait a minute, that's, that's strange. Nothing in it. So I texted our mail delivery driver. Now, yeah, we, we've got a, a small post office where we live here in Osprey, Florida. It's, it's very small, and I know the mail delivery guy well, but I know him well because I've asked him for help for so many times. You know, I send out a lot of books, so I have a lot of packages that won't even go in the mailbox. Doesn't matter. I put them in these big mail bins. I can send them out by her mailbox. He'll take them no problem. He says, if it's raining, just leave me a note. I'll come up to the door and get them. You know, so it's, there's that kind of relationship. Now, I treat him well and show my appreciation in various ways that I won't go into detail on. But anyway, so I texted David. I said, David, we've been gone for a couple weeks and I have no mail. He said, oh, yeah. He said, after three or four days, I saw mail piling up and I figured you and Joanne must be gone somewhere. So I kept it. I've got it all stored for you. You want me to bring it by tomorrow? I said, yes. I thought, wow. Here's a guy that I've had, I've asked 
to help me in so many ways. I've asked him to help me, and his service is just invaluable. And he took that initiative. I I love the small-town feel of that, for one thing. But he took the initiative to collect our mail and keep it for us. No problem. Now, how many people would do that? But it's because, again, we got a unique relationship because I've asked him to help me so many times. Well, that kind of wraps it up. I'm going to stop there. But this book, Influence, it could also be called Humans 101. I mean, that's kind of how Tobias Lutke, the founder and CEO of Spotify, referred to it because it taught him. You know, he spent his teenage years you know, working with computers, not humans. His wife calls him an immigrant to the human condition. That's how bad he was. He's a computer geek. He wasn't good with people at all until he read this book and it opened his eyes to how, the, how, how he could change that dramatically. So again, it just affirms my affinity for books, my love of books, and that they open the doors of opportunity in so many ways. This is an unusual one. Rather than just being business principles, how to manage your time, how to be more productive, and all those things we have, this just this reminds me of the the old Dale Carnegie book, you know, how to win friends and influence people. Just a simple principles about good human connection can elevate your success like nothing else. Some of these these events that we're having for forty eight days meetups that we're having around the country right now, that's my focus: how creating and nurturing meaningful relationships will elevate your success like nothing else. The business principles come later. Those we can figure out, those are easy to do, but developing meaningful relationships is what's going to transform your life and business. Well, then they are these. So the five that we went through, reciprocation. Giving something away will increase your success. Liking. Be a person that other people like. Be pleasing, be kind, be compassionate. Authority, dress and act like someone others will respect. Social proof, do something that others want to talk about in a good way. And consistency, be comfortable asking others for help. It'll deepen your relationships. Well, I want to just remind you of our quotation for today coming from Craig Linville, founder of CEO. Who will be better because of what I do today? What a great thought. Who will be better because of what I do today? Well, thanks for listening. Thanks for sending in your questions, for being open to growing and being a powerful force for making the world a better place. Hey, the best thing you can do to to help me out, and I'm asking you for this, is share this episode with three of your friends, people who you know are committed to personal growth. And I love the long-term relationships. You know, people that I meet that I um, met 30 years ago, where we're now still, you know, great friends, share things together, successes, challenges. Share this with three of your friends where you're nurturing those relationships. They'll thank you for it. You become known as a person who is that kind of positive person, somebody who offers hope and encouragement. If you give somebody a book or recommend a book like this and that helps that person succeed, It'll elevate your credibility and value in their eyes. Somebody gave me this book. A lady gave me this book that I'm referring to today, Influence. I'll never forget that. She gave me this book. It opened my eyes to something new that's really valuable to me. So stay committed to your belief that we can, without a shadow of a doubt, find or create work and a life that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. 
Have a great week.